Louise McSharry on 2FM. Between 1993 and 1998, eight women went missing from an area around Dublin that became known as the Vanishing Triangle. There were whispers of a serial killer responsible for some, if not all, of these cases, but nobody was ever brought to justice. 20 years later, the brutal murder of Justine Valdez spurned crime novelist Claire McGowan to look into these murders more, and her new book, The Vanishing Triangle, is now available on Audible. Claire, thank you so much for coming on to talk to me. Good morning. Hello, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. And I'm really excited to talk to you. I have been listening to your book and like, I feel like enjoying is the wrong word because obviously yes. it's not exactly light material. But I, I said earlier in the show that there, so often I have found myself thinking, if I had this physical book in front of me, I would be highlighting this sentence and I would be highlighting this sentence and I would be highlighting this sentence because it's about so much more than just these particular uh, crimes. It's about kind of the way that we deal with crimes against women in general um, and you know the context of these crimes I, I have found it absolutely fascinating but tell me first what brought you to writing this book in the first place uh, I suppose it was a sort of a, a series of um, serendipitous coincidences really I I'd never really particularly thought to write anything non-fiction or true crime I'm a novelist um, I write about I'd written a series of novels about missing persons in Ireland so it was something I knew about and I knew that Ireland does not have a particularly great record with missing persons. There's quite a lot of people long-term missing. I think it's almost a thousand, which is quite a lot for the size of the country. Um, But then it just came up that I was asked if I knew of any kind of true crime cases I might want to write about. And immediately I thought about these ones, the Vanishing Triangle, which I'd heard about about 10 years ago, probably. And Mm -hmm. they kind of really shocked me that I didn't remember ever hearing about it growing up in Ireland. Yeah, it's funny because I knew the names of the women, um, I think because I was working in current affairs radio in the 2000s and every once in a mm-hmm. while the cri- the cases would come up and there might be new evidence or they would come up for co- discussion. But I didn't know really about the cases at all. Um, and I was interested to hear you say, this, say the same because I thought maybe it was because I lived abroad for, for a, you know, a significant portion of the 90s. Um, but So just remind people of what happened and these cases so I suppose with a lot of these cases we're just kind of drawing the lines ourselves like the the concept of the triangle that's just a line that people have drawn by grouping the cases and even the dates that I've said 93 to 98 that's just me kind of looking at it but between those years uh, so the five years there were eight women went missing around Dublin in an area um not not a massively large area Uh, And in some cases, that was two women a year going missing. And none of them have ever been found. And what I found looking into it as well, that there were also a few murders in the same area in the years leading up to this, which are possibly connected. Yeah. And and all women. uh, All women. Yeah, all women. uh, The oldest, 39. Youngest, 17. It just seems wild to me that, you know, there were all these violent crimes against women or these women who disappeared and, you know, we weren't talking about it more. What do you think that was about? Um, Lots of things. I grew up in in the north. I grew up just over the border. Um, So I wondered if maybe that was why I hadn't heard about it, because the news was so completely dominated by politics during those years. Maybe there wasn't room for it to break through. But I think also there was, uh, it took the Guardian quite a long time to to group these cases and to think maybe they are connected. Mm. And even some of the families were saying to them, but the second woman that went missing, her family actually said to the guardy, do you think this could be connected to the other woman that went missing four months ago, just down the road? And she said she was told, no, that doesn't happen here. That's absolutely not what's happened. So they were looking at other answers. They were looking at 
maybe some of the women had killed themselves or maybe they had run away, gone off with a man. Mm. So a lot of assumptions were made. It didn't seem to be on their radar that possibly there could be a kind of a serial killer or a serial abductor. And of course, in the nineties, we, we didn't have um, the technology that we have now. So we didn't have kind of mobile phone tracking, you know, or um, as much CCTV or that kind of thing. So presumably, evidence is relatively thin on the ground. I think that's made a massive difference, actually, because the first disappearances were in ninety three, and one of the guardy that worked in the case told me that people, not if everyone, even had a landline in ninety three in the countryside. Mm. So people. They might have seen something and they wouldn't necessarily think to report it. Then they might have forgotten it by the time they got around to it. They might not have seen that someone was missing because we didn't have social media. We didn't have rolling TV news. Um, And things like DNA have made a huge difference. Um, Number plate recognition. All of that's made it so much easier. And you you mentioned the Justine Valdez case, which I also talk about. That was basically solved the same day because of the, unfortunately, it was too late for her. But they knew who did it pretty much the same day she was taken because of things like CCTV and number plate recognition. And when the police did start to perhaps make a connection between these crimes um, and they started looking into them, was there any improvement in terms of, you know, any any even movement toward uh, solving the cases? Unfortunately, no. There was a cold case unit was set up towards the end of the 90s and they had six detectives that worked on it for three years. And they weren't able to find anything. There just wasn't any evidence to find or people just weren't talking. So I sort of went into the project knowing I won't be able to solve it because there just isn't, there isn't any evidence, unfortunately. And what did you find um, in terms of things that linked the cases together, aside from the fact that they were women? Um, what other things did you find connecting them? Well, it's hard not to kind of see potential patterns. So there actually weren't any connections that were obvious, which is in in a way slightly unusual in Ireland. Like you would sort of expect that, you know, some of them might have vaguely known each other just from such a small country. Um, but I did sort of notice there were a few patterns, like quite a few disappearances were took place around Christmas. So I don't know if that was just a coincidence of more violent things tend to happen that time of year or, or what. Um, I think a number of the women didn't look sort of slightly similar to each other as well. They had, a lot of them had dark hair. Um, but again, this is all just, you know, trying to, look for patterns that that maybe aren't there. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. Um, you know, you speak in the book about the fact that, you know, if you were writing this as a fictional thing, you know, this is where you would put the clue or this is where the answer would be. But that's the struggle with the reality of it is that you did you know, there wasn't any of that stuff. Yeah. So it's kind of not possible to solve it really unless some of the bodies are found or unless someone knows something and decides to talk. Another thing that you uh, talk about in the book, it's it's kind of funny because it's a book, but obviously I'm, it's an audio book, so <laughs> you're talking, but um, is kind of the responsibility and the uh, blame that is placed on women when they are the victim of these kinds of crimes. Um, and it was interesting because you, you mentioned a case in the UK, but obviously we've had that arise recently again, where, you know, yeah. a woman was walking home from a friend's house and, you know, that kind of thing of like, you shouldn't be walking home from a house at 9pm, but you go through various different situations and you basically come to the conclusion that there is nothing a woman can do to be safe if you look at the crimes that are committed. Um, And did that kind of ring truer and truer for you as you were working through this? Very much so. And then just as the book was about to come out, as you mentioned, the Sarah Everard case, and I live in London, so I live not far from where she went missing, probably just a few miles. And I know that every woman in London was really affected by that, just the idea that that could have been any of us just walking home. And she'd done all these things that you were supposed to do, like texting your friends and phoning someone, 
wearing bright clothes. She'd gone a different route. But there were still people saying online things like, well, why was she walking home at night? She shouldn't have done that. I even heard someone I know and really respect say, why did her friend let her walk home? Because if her friend didn't feel bad enough that that happened. And I just thought that was awful that these same things are still happening more than 20 years later. And people said that about Annie McCarrick as well. They said, the first woman that went missing, they said, why was she walking alone? And she left her house at 3 p.m. So it's like, are we not allowed to walk even in the middle of the day? Um or Georgia Jacobs, she was out walking in the again in the middle of the day on a summer's day, and she apparently went missing from right outside her front door. I thought as well, you pointed out that like you know even things like transportation wasn't as easily accessed in the mid nineties. We mm-hmm. didn't have the the transport links that we have now, and even now they leave you know a lot to be desired. So if you're not going to you know walk, then what are you going to do? You're going to maybe get a taxi, but you know maybe some people can't afford to get a taxi. So are women simply mm-hmm. play, paying a tax to exist? You know on the basis yeah. of protecting themselves. Sort of a, a curfew in some ways as well. And I found quite a lot of cases where men had posed as taxi drivers and then driven the woman out, often in the same area as well, often Wicklow, and attacked them. Um, and we had a case here in London a while back of a black cab. He was a licensed black cab driver and he raped quite a few women as well. So there's nothing really that you can do. It's, I think we have to not look at that. Not that, that should not be the focus. Like, what can we do to keep ourselves safe? Yeah, I, I, and, you, you know, know I think that's... Think about. Yeah, and I think that's a really important thing to say because I think that as women, we might know rationally that it's ridiculous to blame this stuff on the people mm-hmm. who who have crimes committed against them. You know, you might know rationally in your head that, it, you know, of course the person who is responsible for the crime is the person who committed the crime. You know, that there's no asking for it. There's no she shouldn't have. There's no blah, blah, blah. But when these things happen to us, I think we do immediately revert to that line of thinking that oh I shouldn't have you know I shouldn't have walked home with him I shouldn't have you know been nice mm-hmm. to him I shouldn't have responded when he spoke to me it's a very hard thing to shake that isn't it I think it's just a way of thinking well could that happen to me because it's so terrifying that idea and then thinking well what what did she potentially do that I wouldn't do mm. that maybe that would keep myself safe so yeah it's just a way of dealing with the fear I suppose and can I ask, because uh, I, I actually wrote this down when I said I wanted to highlight things in the book. Um, I actually wrote this down on my phone um, because there's a line in the kind of introduction to the book where you say, I wanted to find out why men who hurt women are so often protected and shielded by institutions. Do you feel like you came to any realistic conclusion on that one? I just think it was easier to turn a blind eye. And there were so many cases um, of men who had hurt women or children being moved around the country, so by the church, um, by the IRA even, I found were doing exactly the same thing. If they had predators that they knew about, they would just quietly move them away. And in some cases, they would they threatened, allegedly threatened the victims not to speak up. Um, and I think I found that the kind of the state was doing that as well. They would sometimes, if people were caught for doing earlier crimes, they would either not convict, not convict them or convict them and they wouldn't serve any time. Or they would go to prison and then just serve a few years and then be out again. And I found one case also in the 90s where a man had gone to prison for two rapes. He'd raped two different women in separate incidents within a month. I think within a few weeks of each other, maybe even in the same week, which was a a quite frightening escalation. Mm. He was out in a few years and then he murdered a woman not long after that. It would, it's, it, it would, would exhaust it, you. It would exhaust you. It was. And I just kept finding more and more and more cases. I actually had to leave a few things out. There were just so many. It was kind of overwhelming. 
And can I ask you, because obviously we've said technology has improved things and so it is easier to investigate these cases now when things like this happen. But in terms of the culture, do you think there's been an improvement? Um, I think not massively. I think at least we're talking about these things, at least when people say, oh, she shouldn't have done X, Y and Z, other people are calling that out. So that's one thing. But I, you know, I dug up a whole load of cases in the last couple of years of like rape cases where the women had been really kind of tormented in court and where the cases had collapsed despite having quite a lot of evidence and and where things were said like well look at this underwear that she was wearing you know she must have wanted it she'd asked for it so unfortunately that that really doesn't seem to have changed enough um the rape conviction rate is incredibly low both in Ireland and the UK it's sort of hovering around one percent I think in a lot of areas Hmm. what do you think we can do aside from talking about it uh, I think partly it's institutional, so it's just looking at how the police on in both countries kind of deal with it. Um, and then it's just all of us not to say these things about what could she have done. And I think it's also about calling out behaviour earlier on, because if there are violent men, this usually won't be the first time they've done something. There usually will be a sign they'll have said something or they'll have done something in the past, so... It's about the people that do have the power, I suppose, to call that out and just change the culture. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. One of the cases that you write about in the book, um, there was I can't, I'm sorry, I can't remember specifically which incident this was, but there was someone who who had committed a crime who uh, was known to a taxi driver or something because he knew that he'd like inappropriately touched or said something inappropriate to his wife. And you make the point that usually, yeah, you know, you, you often have a feeling about these people. But then also uh, the police said, a guard said that, you know, a lot often these men don't show themselves at the same time so you kind of can't win yeah Yeah, I think there's just unfortunately there isn't a way to make sure that this never happens because as you say there were quite a few cases of men who had done some extremely violent crimes murders and rapes and then there was no history there's no kind of they've never been accused of anything apparently and that's almost that's quite terrifying almost you could just all of a sudden do something like that yeah, I mean, obviously, we're not going to solve it now, unfortunately. Um, But I really think that uh, the book is worth a listen. It's called The Vanishing Triangle. It's by Claire McGowan. It's available on Audible. Um, And I think it, it is really important for us to think about these things, to talk about these things as unpleasant as it is. And it's not nice to think about the fact that we are unsafe as women. But that, unfortunately, is the reality. And until we continue to confront it to a point where it can't be ignored anymore, um, then I don't think anything is really going to happen. So, Claire McGowan, thanks for, thanks for doing this project. I think it's really worthwhile. Oh, thank you. That's really kind. Thanks so much, Claire. Have a good day. Thanks. Bye. Thank then. you. Louise McSharry on 2FM.